You're listening to Ember Weekend, your weekend recap of all things Ember. This is episode 38. I'm Chase McCarthy. And I'm Jonathan Jackson, and we're here to keep you in the Ember Run Loop. We're broadcasting from Hashrocket HQ, and we're here with special guest Chris Thoburn. So, Chris, uh, we, we met at uh, the Chicago Ember training, and I think that was a really fun time. Uh, are you a Chicago resident? Yeah, I live in Chicago full-time. Been here about nine years. Cool, cool. Oh, you want to tell us a little about yourself, about your past experience? I'm a runner, so if you've ever wondered about the handle, Runspired. I have. Yeah, <laughs> it is because I'm a runner. <laughs> I took a few years off, actually, and it was a few of my formative Ember years that I took off. I was just way too busy with work and school. I did both full-time there for a year in the middle and uh, started running again about three and a half months ago, and uh, my last marathon was actually last Saturday. Yay, man. Congrats. That's a, an accomplishment right there. That's awesome. It, it was the best race I've ever run in my life. Uh, not time-wise. Time-wise, it was far from the best race I've ever run in my life, but it was Death Valley, uh, up a mountain, down a mountain. And Oof. first time in Death Valley, if you've never been there, you guys need to go. It's like being on Mars. It's crazy now, <laughs> this world. It's, it's amazing. <laughs> Cool. Yeah. Well, now I know. Now I know a little bit about your your Twitter handle. I'm I'm very excited. I really love learning about Twitter handles. So, how did you get started in Ember? What What's your experience there? I uh, got started in development, actually, primarily as a JavaScript developer. There was a few years there of PHP and a little Java, a little C, a little Python, a little everything at the beginning. But uh, what started me down my road as a developer was I wanted to build an app that uh, was a web based app and similar in functionality to Google Docs. And this is 2010. Uh, so I'd, I'd been a developer for several years, but uh, not really hard at it. And that process, I had no idea going in. I was way too junior of a developer to know anything about any, any technology. Uh, I should never have taken on the idea. But that process for the next three years forced me to build a lot of things in JavaScript at a time when there was nothing in JavaScript land. And I, and I left that. I started evaluating frameworks to feel like, I just wanted to know what was out there, uh, what the tool sets that were available to me were. And I came to Ember and I discarded it. I was like, ah, it was pre 1.0. I, I, it was like 0.6 and it was looked really, I was just like, ah, no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> walked away from it. And then I came back around to, to this reevaluation a few months later and it was that uh, release candidate for 1.0. And read through the docs, what was there, and I liked it, but I still felt that it was way heavier than I needed. I had this kind of juxtaposition of I had been building apps in JavaScript, and a lot of them had a lot of the functionality of being SPAs, but I didn't really grasp the concept of a real full SPA the way Ember builds it yet. It was more of sort of the backbone, sort of Angular uh, approach where you serve up a web page and it can do a lot of different things, but then when you go off to the next web page, you're serving up something something new. So I uh, I was moving on. I looked at Angular, hated it, walked away. I had already looked at Backbone many times. <laughs> I never wanted to touch Backbone in my life. Uh, and so I was on this uh, kind of binge of, do I just want to go build my own framework? I've got most of the pieces already that I've brought with me from this project that failed of a really good framework. Why don't I go build my own? And then I saw something that somebody had built in Ember. And I go, whoa, how did you do that? <laughs> and I went back and I looked at Ember again and I decided to dig into the source and I started digging into the source code and just fell in love with it. And the, the part that I really fell in love with is actually a part that I struggle with now and want to do a lot of like 
I use it heavily, but I want to rewrite it. The part I fell in love with was Backburner. Uh, because when I got to Backburner, that was one of the complaints I had about everything else that evaluated up to that point. I had realized when I was building my crazy idea that I needed a way to have queues that really manage the work being done in the app and schedule things into these queues. And that doing that really gave you a lot of uh, performance benefits, uh, not just from the DOM writing perspective, but even from what requests you are making. It gave you a higher chance of being able to batch network requests together uh, or being able to coalesce requests into a single request by having scheduled the, the work that way. So when I hit Backburner, I was like, wow, this is exactly like the solution that I had come to, the approach I had taken. And if these people have come to this conclusion, there are probably a lot of really smart devs that are on the right track and I should keep looking at this and evaluating it. One thing led to another and it's two, little over two years later. And to me right now, there's no other tech I want, out, want to work with out there. Like I've played a lot with things like React and, and whatnot as they've come out, but even where they're strong and even where they beat Ember, there's nothing that has the full uh, single page application ability that I've really come to love that Ember's got. And that's, that's kept me there. Yeah. It's uh, it's really interesting that you mentioned the, uh, the SPA, like uh, the, the concept as your, your initial pass of Ember, you were saying that the, the SPA, you know, full blown SPA wasn't necessarily something that you were ready for and your first pass. I see that a lot today. Like when I talk to people about things that I'm really excited about in Ember, I'm like, check this out, look at this. And and I get consistently like, oh no, I just want to, I just want a little bit now. I don't want it all. I don't want, I don't want to have this. And I'm like, no, 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 you can't have a hard page refresh here. We got to, you know, this should train, this should be smooth. Like why would a user expect to see a, a full page refresh here? And like, I see that consistently come up. And I think that maybe that's just as you, you go through this like JavaScript churning mass of like oh let me figure this out how do i get this thing to work how do i get this dynamic uh, behavior and you know you end up coming out coming to some conclusions and i think a lot of those conclusions have been kind of solidified in in the ember process the things that i really like and value so it's pretty interesting a absolutely like every time i think oh why did ember do that the moment i start building my own thing i start coming back to oh duh that's why that is that way <laughs> uh <laughs> there's a lot of those oh duh moments and so I, I, I eventually, I, I spent a lot of time in the first year with Ember fighting Ember. Uh, it was not a painless experience. And I think that is one reason why I spent so much time trying to help beginners in the Ember Slack is I came into Ember with a lot of JavaScript experience and I still had a hard time. So if you're coming in from a trad more traditional web dev background or a more traditional full stack framework, you have to be 100% lost, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah. There's a process. There's just a, there's just got to be that process. You have to you have to come and stumble, stub your toe before you can move on to something that doesn't stub your toe as much. And for a lot of people, that's going one direction. But I, I definitely think Ember is the cream of the crop, in my opinion. Yeah. So yeah, the, the last year, the last year with Ember for me has just been a dream. It's uh, so many cool things I've been able to build and do with it. And really, once I stopped fighting it and started really understanding how all the pieces fit together and what they really did and were it unlocked a, a huge amount of productivity that uh, I've really appreciated having afforded to me. But what's interesting about all this is that the reason I want to talk to you today is right now we're struggling with this concept of what's an SBA and even getting people to accept SBAs. 
And we're still at that point. And I'm already looking probably two years into the future, but I would argue that future is realizable within six months. And that future is instead of Ember being an SBA, Ember is an application. Ember is not a single page application. Ember is an application. And that application, you start deploying it wherever you want, whether it's a mobile device on Android or it's a mobile device on iOS or it's a desktop app or it's a Chrome extension or it's a traditional web app. It's just an application. Stop thinking about it as an SBA. It's so much more. And it's already so hard for people to swallow SPAs. It's going to be even harder for them to swallow this. <laughs> All sorts of interesting things. You, you have to come up with a clever name. I think that's that's the key. You need to come up with like Glimmer. I don't know. I, I can't. I can't yeah. think of anything. I'm not clever. I'm not as clever as Tom. Or, or you. Like, I've come up with lots of clever names. I think uh, for <laughs> lots of the pieces that are involved, like Smoke and Mirrors or Skyrocket. Uh, I've got a couple of other buzzy words in my back pocket <laughs> for some repos that are coming along. Uh, that I'm not going to throw out there just yet because I'm not ready to lay claim to them just yet. <laughs> but uh, the funny thing is, is in all of that, I've never been able to come up with a buzzword for an entire framework for doing this. And I think there's a reason for that. I don't think we need a framework for doing this. We just need a lot of really good add-ons. Ember is an ecosystem. You don't need one thing that does it all. And... I think if you build one thing that does it all and is meant to be the high, this is how you use Ember to deploy to all platforms, then you're going to lose a lot of the flexibility and power that Ember has right now. The add-on ecosystem is what is going to let us go, oh, I have an Ember app. It's a web app. Now I want it to be a Cordova app. Done. Now I want it to be an Electron app. Done. It's more about being able to build from one thing that you have slowly over time to his much larger thing than it is about being this large answer at the beginning. That makes a lot of sense. So when, when you talk about uh, making this, making an Ember app deployable to something like iOS, are you still thinking the kind of the Cordova approach where you're just rendering HTML or are you thinking like an abstraction layer that kind of abstracts the native stuff? So I'm still thinking uh, Cordova. So there's a, a project I've been trying to get off the ground, but I haven't had a lot of time for it yet. Uh, there's so many other projects being juggled in the air right now, but it's Ember CLI platforms. It, I've been assembling people that work with Cordova or Crosswalk or Electron uh, currently and trying to convince them that there's a way that we can work on all these things better. And that's kind of what, like what Luke Melia did with Ember CLI Deploy. There are a lot of people doing Ember Electron or Ember NWJS, or, or I think it's actually called Ember Node WebKit. Uh, there's, I think, uh, Justin McNally, I think, has... One for Chrome extensions. There's Ember CLI Cordova. And then if you want to use Crosswalk with Ember CLI Cordova, you can, but there's a whole other painful process you go for through to make sure that you get that set up right. There's a, there's a lot of people working on individual platforms right now, but nobody really working on, here's just an easy process for taking an Ember app and putting it on a platform. So in one sense, yes, Cordova, I'm not changing anything. We go the same way. Uh, it's ju you're just building a, a JavaScript application with CSS and HTML assets and JavaScript assets within a, a Cordova shell. But on the other hand, I'm taking a one-to-many approach instead of a one-to-one -one approach. You have a single repository. 
it's separate from your Rails repository or your sales repository or whatever you're using for your backend. It's just your client side repository. And that repository, that's your app. It's not naturally within Cordova. It's not naturally within WebKit where those platforms would put your assets. It's just an app. And then you use a process really similar to Ember CLI Deploy, likely even built over top of Ember CLI Deploy to move your assets from dist to the www folder of Cordova or to the dist folder within Node WebKit or the assets folder within Electron, wherever that final resting place needs to be. And you get a platform directory in your project. And within that, each target that you've added over time, much like with Ember CLI Deploy, you have a plugin ecosystem. You have a platform plugin ecosystem. And you'll just add the plugin for the platforms for a Chrome extension. And it'll, whenever you build for the Chrome extension, it'll move your app built files into the correct platforms directory. It'll deploy it to the final location for you if you need to do that, or live reload for you if you need to do that. Uh, so building a process for taking a single application and sticking it in the right wrapper, but also leaving those wrappers in their own subdirectories so that they can be modified as needed. So you, you'll end up with things like uh, Cordova, you decide that you want to use the native camera instead of the HTML5 camera. Uh, and so you'll want to add some plugins. So same thing with Electron or with uh, Chrome extensions, you, you might uh, end up wanting to add some special asset files for doing some additional things. Uh, within your extension. So giving you the right hooks and the right process to make that easy, but also separate that out from your app. So your app is your app, and those other things are really just places you're deploying your app. So that's the high-level overview of uh, what I want to see accomplished with the uh, Ember CLI platforms. Um, so you're saying that the uh, platforms, all of them would be versioned with your repo. You would build kind of once, and then you'd have the ability to modify those? Yes and no. Uh, it's the, the platforms themselves are versioned with your repo, uh, at least in 1.0 version of Ember CLI platforms. It's, it would be possible eventually to have platforms be sibling repositories and where the, you could iterate Cordova on its own and then still deliver those assets into it from a, a different version, mm -hmm. if you will. But uh, my experience developing apps with Cordova is that a lot of times you're developing features specific to Cordova in your Ember app at the same time. You kind of need to be in lockstep. It makes sense to be in lockstep. Uh, where I don't like Ember CLI Cordova's approach is that currently it just sent sim links from dist over to the www folder. And what I discovered with that is it's, it heavily limits your ability to deploy to more than one spot. Because a lot of times you've got code that is really specific to Cordova or code that is really specific to the Chrome extension that doesn't belong being built into the Cordova repository or doesn't belong being built into uh, the Chrome extension repository. So one of the reasons to piggyback on the Ember CLI deploy process and piggyback on some of the other abilities that Ember CLI has is to enable you to move your assets, actually move a copy of the assets in that built state into that deployment target. So it's not lockstep in the sense that you could move one project forward faster than you move another project forward. You could leave a, a built version of your assets within the Cordova directory and keep building for the web and keep building for somewhere else. Uh, and leave those platforms stable at some other version and then come back to it later because it's not sim linked. Right. And, and that's a really 
a second part of this Ember CLI platform idea is, is something I, I, I built pieces of it was never really able to fully flush it out and would love to, uh, is this concept of a platform filter where my Android versus my iOS code in my Ember app was maybe 100 lines total over the entire project. That's not enough code to separate things out as an add-on or to separate things out as a whole new project or even to fork the project. It didn't make sense to have two repos. But you do have this thing where you have code that's specific to Android that you're not using for iOS. Or you have code that's specific to Cordova plugins that you're not using for your Chrome extension. You don't want to ship that both places. So using a combination of in-repo add-ons and using a combination of some file extensions that are proprietary where you just add like .android to something or .ios to something, you filter out modules at build time based on the platform that you're deploying to. So you would, in, in that case where like your application HBS file is just five lines different for Android versus iOS, you could have an Android version and an iOS version and send the right version of those files over. That sounds a lot like a, like a platform defeatureify or something, but at build time. Exactly what it is, but at build time. And by doing it at build time, you never ship that code to the final client. So you get the, the win of not having bloated the final code base with, with all this code that's for platforms you don't care about. That's awesome. Right. Recently, I've been uh, attracted to things. Uh, when I, whenever I do cross-platform, uh, things like I've been playing with Game Closure, uh, which is super like, not like for an actual app, but it, it's interesting for a little game stuff. But uh, you literally have like three files and, and it just builds for Android and builds for iOS. And it and you never see the project file. It, it generates it at build time. Um, and that was one of my biggest like things about um, uh, RubyMotion or Cordova, where you have to like manage the projects reach. And now you have to basically be an Android and an iOS developer and manage all those projects. Yeah. And uh there is a lot of pain with Cordova at the moment. Hmm. There's, they've, they've come a long way in the last year, but there's still a lot of pain there. And that may be the biggest hangup in really going to a uh, HTML5-based cross-platform app setup is that the Cordova ecosystem, I don't think it's ready for the realization of this vision yet. The plugins, they're always lagging Cordova releases by one to two versions and functionality. Uh, Cordova itself, they finally got rid of Plugman for the plugin like version control. They're using NPM now, but they still, even with the NPM versions, uh, have their own kind of custom JSON file for declaring uh, dependencies that even on the same machine, two builds might, uh, two installs might generate a different plugin setup, even with hard lock dependencies, which that's where the pain with Cordova comes right now is you have to keep it under version control. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't need to. You should never see it. Uh, ideally, with Ember CLI platforms, by the end of it, you don't want ever see the fact that a Cordova project exists at all. But in its current state, you have to have it, and you have to keep it under version control. Because if you don't, there's no way to ensure that a build will work from one machine to the next. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and you've got like m multiple moving targets, like Xcode's changing out from underneath you, the way Cordova is working, and trying to get that all matched up would be really painful. And, yeah. and the only reason it works for something like uh, as simple as the as game closure is because it is so simple. It's like it's just 2D. And so it's just basically drawing a canvas uh, and you get simple views and stuff, but it wouldn't work for anything like a real app. But it is it is a nice dream, like something that I, would, I really wish that would something like that would be possible. And the thing to keep an eye on, 
which I think is going to move the ecosystem forward faster. I think it's already forcing Cordova to move faster is Crosswalk. Uh, right now, most people's exposure with Crosswalk is using it as a Cordova extension, but it's also its own standalone, like basically web view framework, similar to how Cordova is one. And Crosswalk is currently the only way to do Android. Like Cordova has an Android option, but it's built over the Android web view that's default to the system, which means that you're ages behind whatever the current Chrome view releases, and you have an additional set of bugs because it's really not the same web view underneath at all. Whereas with Crosswalk, when you install Crosswalk, it gives you always the latest and greatest Chrome view. So you can take Crosswalk and put an Ember app in it all the way back to Android 2.4 and have the latest and greatest Chrome view, which solves a lot of the performance issues, solves most of the feature issues. Uh, you still have the standard Android is slower on JS execution stuff, but what I've come to realize is that if you optimize your data flows and you optimize the situations in which you render, that doesn't affect you as much as it sounds like it's going to affect you. Right. You also have a, um, a little bit of application bloat too, right? Because you're, you're installing a whole new browser. You're, you are. You have, I think it's about 45 megabytes of overhead, which right. you might go, oh man, that's huge. Uh, the install for like Facebook is like 200 megabytes now. <laughs> and then they take another 350 megabytes of data from you immediately for storage, additional storage. So you got to, you know, you have to weigh that. Right. Uh, and, I, and I actually saw a, a, a figure that was like tw something more like 20 megabytes. So I don't know if they've, if they've changed it or optimized it more recently. They, they may have been able to reduce that even more. I know the Cordova version of Cordova Crosswalk is a lot heavier than Crosswalk itself. So mm -hmm. uh, the number I was pulling out is the last thing I saw in Cordova plus Crosswalk. But keep an eye on Crosswalk because what's amazing about that project is the speed at which it's moving. I don't know who's backing them or how they got funded but they seem to be far more staffed and far more on top of their game and iterating at a much higher pace than the Cordova team is. Uh, they, right now, mostly Android, but they do have a WK WebView option for iOS. It's not quite as advanced as Cordova's WK WebView options, but it's nearly there. And with the pace at which they've been moving, I would not be surprised that within you know, six months, it's the better option. The only thing that keeps me using Cordova over Crosswalk right now, uh, or using Crosswalk within Cordova right now, is the plugin ecosystem. Crosswalk doesn't have a plugin ecosystem yet, whereas Cordova does. Uh, so if you really want to get down into the native APIs and, and, and make use of them, you, you have to stick with Cordova. Right. It seems like uh, utilizing something like Ember CLI's add-on system for Crosswalk would be amazing. There's so many, so many potential avenues all of this could go. It's, yeah. uh, I, I think we just need to start building good primitives, Ember CLI platform, have a good pipeline for how to integrate a platform, and just see what people build over the top of it. Uh, I think that's the story of Ember this whole last year was what happened when you had better build tooling and an automatic build pipeline. People started building add-ons like crazy. We went from maybe three or four projects that I was aware of that you could use with Ember that were open source to thousands, it seems. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't remember the exact numbers, but there were thousands at Wicked Good because uh, somebody said it in their talk. Like uh, Ember Observer has a thousand or something. Yeah, it's crazy. That's wild. Like, just how fast all that's exploded. Yeah. Uh, and for the, for the most part, the add-on ecosystem has seemed to do a pretty good job of keeping up with Ember. It's some things will lag. 
especially that 113 upgrade, everything lag. Mm -hmm. But overall, the advantage that Ember gives you with easy Sunvert upgrades has appeared to stay true with add-ons, I feel. I think there's friction yeah. in some in some spaces. Like I know I know that there's been some problems with a few add-ons that I, I personally use. Um, but usually they're met with help from the core to try to like make it easier the next time, basically. So I know there's been some there's been yeah. several pushes to try to make add-on development less, you know, stranded, you know, on your own island kind of thing. But I, I love the core's commitment to if you're abusing a private API, maybe there should be a public one that does this. And that's really helped add-ons, I think, is everywhere there was a, a lot of private API usage, which is what was causing pain, that's led to better cowpaths for that's the public API we need uh, for people to do this more easily. Definitely. So when you talk about uh, your your Ember platform, this this idea, this vision, um, what do you think the role of uh, Ember.js engines are going to play in kind of facilitating that? On one hand, nothing. You don't need engines to do any of this. On the other hand, I think engines are unlocking a lot of feature possibilities that are optimal for mobile apps built this way. Uh, one of those, which uh, the people implementing engines are going to hate me for even suggesting, <laughs> is that it's going to enable us to do hot code reloading more easily, I think. And whether that's true day one, day 100, day 365, I'm not sure when. Uh, you'll need engines to be async. Right now, they're only synchronous. You'll need engines to be able to do, do async loading. And even then, there will be some additional challenges to solve. But it's going to eventually allow you to take a part of an app and maybe swap out what's there. So that's part one of that. But uh, part two of that uh, really hooks into Ember CLI deploy. There's a piece of Ember CLI deploy that I'm fascinated by and which I didn't understand which is often in Emberland, this happens. I don't understand something, then I try to do something, then I have a realization, wait, that was actually a really brilliant idea. Why didn't I think of that sooner? Why did he use Redis? Why, why, does, why, does, why did the decision to go Redis with Ember CLI deploy? And then I started thinking about A-B testing. What's really missing in HTML5 mobile apps is an easy way to do A-B testing. What if we could hot reload to our mobile apps where we've delivered a shell and then we load new engines in for specific sections of functionality as needed. And what if those engines were built in an A version and a B version and stashed into Redis so that at request time, we could make a fast determination of which version of the engine we even want to give to somebody. So instead of having built and delivered a single app that has to contain all the variants in advance, for testing. At runtime, deliver the testing version that we intended to deliver to a person. Uh, I think that's really powerful for mobile apps. And I think it, it's more possible now. We still have to wait cross fingers for some of what's happening in React land to pave the way. And what I mean by that is right now, the iOS deploy process, whether you're building native or whether you're building HTML5, is a pretty big pain. But there's uh, some experimentation with the Apple legal requirements to see if what some of the terminology says about your ability to load additional web assets in means that you can hot reload patches, fixes, A-B testing kind of stuff to your app, to your HTML5 app, uh, once it's already been downloaded from the store. And if that continues to pass, which right now it seems like it's passing, that Apple is just going to let it run. And 
they've been silent, but they've been allowing it to happen, even despite this being talked about pretty loudly. Uh, so if that continues, then I think it paves the way for HTML5 apps to be a better developer experience than native apps, because you have an easier ability to deliver that hot patch, to deliver your A-B tests, to iterate on that idea. There's a, there's a lot that I think engines unlocks uh, in terms of theoretical ideas. We are a long ways from being able to realize any of those. Hmm. Very cool. Very cool. So what inspired you to begin working on Smoke and Mirrors? So uh, I was building an app. It's conversation-based. You have dynamically sized uh, items, photos, information cards uh, about things, uh, so not normal messages, as well as messages of various lengths. You've got uh, a lot of unknowns when it comes to how long this conversation is going to be or how long it's going to be running. So we needed something list view-ish or UI table view-ish if you're coming from iOS dev. And we looked at list view. I looked at list view. Can't do dynamic item sizes. Okay, that's a non-starter. So I poked around and I found Ember Cloaking, which is built by the guys over at Discourse. It's what uh, Discourse uses uh, for the situation. And it was pretty good. Threw it in there. It worked. We were happy with it. Uh, it ran pretty far. But it had a lot of limitations. And you, you didn't have very good granular control over what, where in the scroll process you were and knowing what was on screen and being able to scroll to a specific item. And its performance was decent, but not great. Then there was this additional thing where it was largely unmaintained and it never made the jump to support 110. And then it never made the jump to support 113. So I took over maintaining it in a branch and I got it to support 113 and uh, 110 and then 113. I converted it over away from container views over to using components. And it was working pretty well. I, uh, I was aware of a lot of people using my, my fork and I kept trying to get it brought in to actually replace Ember Cloaking. And that branch is still sitting there, by the way, not pulled in. I kept trying to get it pulled in and uh, the guys over at Discourse just didn't care because it wasn't on their radar as a piece that needed to be upgraded for them yet. They were still on an older version of Ember. This wasn't really a high priority for them. And you know that's, that's how open source works. I get it. And not everybody has time. I'm guilty of this myself on, on a lot of projects I work on of leaving something in limbo for a little too long. But I kept moving forward and Ember's continuing to move forward. And I'm looking at this implementation and I just said, you know, I can do this better. And I started building my own. I wasn't really sure what all it was going to entail. Like I had obviously built the component version of uh, what this uh, discourse had, and I knew how those guts worked, but I also knew where their bottlenecks were, and I wasn't sure how to solve all of those bottlenecks. So I just started with a, here's something that works implementation, and I started building off of that. And uh, it took about 10 different versions to have one that was okay. So about 0.1 was the first version of Smoke and Mirrors that did what I wanted it to do. Uh, performance was still laggy in some areas, but especially for apps that were pre-113, it still worked, it worked really well. So you figured out that you could proxy an array and then proxy all the objects in the array too. And I built this like array proxy primitive where you basically got 
Glimmer performance without even having Glimmer on mm-hmm. re-renders. Because you, where, where Ember really shined before Glimmer is that if your data was well-modeled, then the HTML it generated to go with that data was stable, and you were only updating bindings. Where it really choked was if that data wasn't stable or wasn't well-modeled, then it would end up regenerating a lot of HTML that it could have otherwise reused. So by proxying everything in that array, the HTML for everything in the list became stable. So you had you know, a very high-performant list without having spent a lot of resources to recycle DOM. So with Smoke and Mirrors, my target from the beginning was it needed to support dynamic items. It needed to support any layout situation you threw at it. I really didn't want it to limit your layout. Did not want to do what list view was doing at that point, which was uh, absolute positioning and uh, a lot of CSS transforms, because that introduces a lot of layout constraints with once you push something into the GPU layer, you can't do fixed or relative positioning in the same way. It becomes relative to the layer's bounding box instead of to the screen's bounding box. So things that you expect to be working aren't working anymore. So I didn't want to take that approach. Uh, and really, I just wanted to focus on building the right primitives so that if I got it right, I could build a lot more than just a decent UI table view replacement. It's been a long journey. We're on in, in the 0.4 range now. There's a plan in place to get to 1.0. I thought I'd be there by now, but I ran out of time and I've had to go and work on some other projects. But it's been an amazing journey. It's you know my oldest add-on and it's uh well actually that's not true it's my second oldest add-on my oldest one's already deprecated uh fun times <laughs> but uh yeah it, it's been an amazing journey and it's been a big growing experience for me it, it's taught me a lot about managing a project in open source and how to get people to collaborate on things and how to run a, a, a good repository that people not only want to use but want to contribute to and can contribute to uh, and that's been a lot of my growth in that project has been uh, less about the code itself and more about the process of figuring out what's the right level of documentation in the code, what's the right level of abstraction in the code, and what's the right level of actual docs to enable somebody to step into this project and make a meaningful contribution without having all the knowledge that I've stored in my head about what's going on and why. Mm-hmm. So a lot of, lot of the work uh, underneath the hood has gone towards uh, simplifying constructs, giving them solid names, and making it a very understandable pattern for how it's doing, what it's doing. And the benefit of doing that is that each time that I've simplified what's going on and how you think about what's going on, there's been another performance boost. Is clean code, easier to optimize. Readable code, easier to optimize. Uh, But clean patterns, super easy to optimize. So. We've gone from this being a very Ember-specific project at the beginning to it being currently an Ember binding to a mostly ES6 project. And the next stage is going to take it from being an Ember binding to an ES6 project to almost entirely an ES6 project with a very lightweight Ember wrapper. And the benefit of doing that is I really think that the primitives I've been narrowing in on and focusing on in this iterative process are valuable for people who want to push the boundaries of performance in their web apps on any project, regardless of framework, 
not just Ember specifically. And this is just a need that everyone has. And if the primitives are right, I'm not 100% sold on, but we're getting there. It's an iterative process. But if the primitives are right, then really they should be made as widely available as possible. Yeah, I totally agree. Uh, I, I saw you have, a, you have a lot of things in here for, you know, um, to, to improve performance. Can you go over some of the things like uh, the occlusion culling things? Yeah, so uh, why don't I just talk a little bit about like how smoke and mirrors works. Uh, smoke and mirrors, it's a mystery repository. Uh, it's actually a really <laughs> big thorn in my side, the fact that it's listed as miscellaneous on Ember Observer. I've tried to get that changed. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times people go, Ember needs a good list view for 2.0 or 1.13 or 1.12 or 1.10. It exists. Yeah. It's called Smoke and Mirrors. Really, I have a marketing problem right now. Of <laughs> guys, like, this solution that you keep complaining about, how do you do infinite scrolling? How do you recycle elements? What, what is the list view alternative? It exists. It's called Smoke and Mirrors. Hello. Come look, check out my project. <laughs> Names run spy. Uh, <laughs> <all right. laughs> uh, so yeah, shouting from the rooftops, this thing is here. But it's also not here at all because I have one goal with this project, that it does not limit your layout, that it does not limit what you want to do. And I've gotten very close to delivering on that. But there's a, just a couple of tickets that are outstanding. All of them will be solved by 1.0. All of them have clear paths to solution, but which keep this from fitting anybody. One of those is your items have dynamic heights. It supports dynamic heights. It actually supports them pretty well, unless you want to start where you're rendering in the middle of the list. Then anything that hasn't figured out its height yet above it is going to cause a small jump as that its height is determined later. Uh, so there's some some things like that, and there's clear paths to and clear solutions for all these things. But uh, it's going to take a little time and effort to to get them to land. Uh, so the strategy mentioned it's fast, it's blazing fast. The strategy, how did I get there? Uh, I got there by really embracing the fact that I could do this iteratively. I figured put out the first version, get it working start profiling, find the bottlenecks, refactor, repeat. And each time that I've done a release, I've done a, a he really heavy series of uh, CPU profiling, memory profiling, uh, figuring out what are the bottlenecks, what can I improve? And each time that I've done that, it's led to uh, a five to 10x speed up um, to the point where it'll take about a millisecond or less for smoke and mirrors to do all the logic it needs to actually enable you to have an infinite list uh, in, during a scroll and, and render what should be on screen and, and what shouldn't be. But I think I can get that a lot faster still. And where it doesn't perform as well as if your component that you're trying to render is really expensive, there's a lot to be gained by reusing DOM for that particular component uh, versus building it all fresh right now. Uh, Smoke and Mirrors builds all DOM fresh each time. And uh, really, that's, I think, the defining difference between Ember Collection and Smoke and Mirrors. It was a riff in opinion. Uh, I was approached eight months ago, whenever Ember Collection really got started off the ground, about, hey, do you want to come join this project? Or uh, do we want to maybe get behind Smoke and Mirrors? And there was a very big difference in direction. And because of that difference in direction, I wanted to keep these projects in competition with each other. Because I felt like 
we weren't going to arrive at the best solution if we all got to the same into the same repository and worked on the same idea because ember collections approach is one that has already been done it's not really that different from list view it's really not that different from the list view implementations that exist in ionic or exist in react now and those implementations they're they're good but they're not amazing. They're very limiting in the layouts they allow. And so collect, Ember Collection has chosen to give you the ability to provide a layout that says, OK, I'm going to have heights of these sizes or a layout that looks like this. That's great. But honestly, how often do you know perfectly pixel by pixel what your layout's going to look like in advance? You don't. And so that's a really big limiting factor. If you're trying to do responsive design and you have to do all these pixel calculations to know what your layout should be, you're already spending a lot of work and effort and dev time on a problem that should have been handled for you. I wanted an approach that didn't limit you. And by not recycling DOM initially, I had that. It doesn't limit you because when you build the new DOM, regardless of size, regardless of what the component is you're giving it, I don't care. It's, I'm agnostic to what you're building. I'm just going to measure it as it comes in, figure out how to adjust things and move on from there. I figured that the iterative process would reveal the best way to do recycling instead of recycling being there at the beginning. So the way Smoke and Mirrors works is it uses a strategy for what to render, what not to render. And it replaces anything it's not rendering with a single wrapper element. That's the big difference between Smoke and Mirrors and most other list implementations, is that I always leave something behind in the DOM and other implementations do not. And that's uh, what gave me the flexibility early on to push forward with, uh, with feature sets and performance without worrying too hard about restricting your layout. But that's also the next thing that's gonna go. Uh, issue number, I think it's 70 in the repository is uh, a branch that's on my local machine. It's about maybe 75% done and we'll move smoke and mirrors to being entirely a kind of a, a virtual diffing process. But where it is uh, now, uh, so you have a viewport area, and then that gets measured, its edges determined, and anything that's within that viewport is supposed to be visible. And you set various buffers. So a buffer is going to be a relative viewport size, like 1x the size of the viewport. And for if you set the buffer to 1, then for a distance of one viewport size on either direction from the viewport, that content is also going to be rendered. And then uh, a difference of 1x from on either side of that, that content is additionally going to be created, but it's going to be set to invisible uh, using our visibility hidden as the CSS property. This was in a trade-off I made because it prevents you from needing to paint it and it prevents you from having new layouts and paints done when things within something that's hidden, uh, has visibility hidden and sent on it. Uh, so you get a performance advantage from setting visibility to hidden. But it turns out that a lot of DOM selectors won't consider things that are hidden mm -hmm. in the result set that they're giving back to you, which is a limiting factor. I don't want you to have limiting factors. So that became uh, an issue, and that's something that uh, is getting phased out, is this hidden stage in it. So right now you have, it's cold. Uh, rundown on that word. So what we commonly call cloaking or list view, 
really, there is a technical term for it. It's occlusion culling. It's a technique that's been around in video games for a long time. TLDR is you want to remove content that isn't visible to the user to improve your render speed. Because the less things you have in the scene, the less thing work you have to do to render it. Right now, the web suffers from this problem where the entire web page is the scene, when really just the part that's visible within the browser window at that moment in time should be considered the scene, and the rest of it should be the universe. So I have this phrase, it's don't render the universe, render the scene. And that's what Smoke and Mirrors is built to address, is rendering just the scene. When it comes to its first implementation, it was just for vertical lists. And what it gets to is if you're far enough out of the scene, then your content is cold, meaning it's removed. So I leave a wrapper with the dimensions of what that content was and tear down whatever you had within it. Then if it's a little bit closer to the screen, it's hidden. And then if it's a little bit closer, it's visible. If it's on screen, it's visible. So that's where it's at now. And that's the strategy that I've grown to. But it's not the strategy that I'm going to have uh, going forward uh, in the near future. Yeah, I um I agree with like we were saying the the layouts and stuff. I, I've done a couple of things with Collection View, and uh and and it, it feels a lot like iOS. Like when you're writing a you know a, I can't remember what it's called like a collection layout or whatever, um and you're having to manually say like well if you have element at this index then it's this width and this height and it's at this position, um and every time you write one of those you feel like you're doing the browser's job in in like in iOS it kind of feels like okay I I kind of do this in native. Um, but whenever I was doing it in uh, for collection view, it, it felt like I should just be able to give you things and it should just lay them out because what I was really doing was just like a flow. So like it's something that, that divs would do anyway. Um, and so I really like the idea of just being able to like render whatever and, and just have it work. Right. And, and the thing is, is render whatever is really important. And because I built smoke and mirrors like I did, as I created the abstractions for this is how you handle scroll. This is how you track the things during scroll. This is how you update the state for things during scroll. I now have a very powerful set of primitives that can be applied to anything, not just lists. There's a PR that just landed that lets you take any element on screen, regardless of whether it was in your list or not, and just register it with a radar. And that radar will alert it when its posi relative position has changed in a way where it should occlude or hide or become invisible. So not just you know, performance via uh, optimizing the scene for a list. I really want to unlock you being able to optimize your render anywhere in your application. I'm calling this technique Svelte rendering to go with the Svelte builds proposal. Uh, really just the idea being if it doesn't belong being rendered at that moment in time, why even bother thinking about it? Thanks for listening to Ember Weekend. If you'd like to follow along, visit us at emberweekend.com. Or you can find us at Ember Weekend, all one word on Twitter, or subscribe via RSS. I'm Chase McCarthy. I'm Jonathan Jackson. I'm Chris Thoburn. And we'll see you next weekend. So, Chris, it's uh, kind of a tradition now that we uh, we ask our guests to uh, to name the episode. And so, without uh, much preparation, uh, what, what do you have for an episode title? <laughs> Whacked out hegemony. <laughs> it's amazing. I love it. I was sure it was going to have something to do with web workers. Millions, <laughs> millions of our viewers are now furiously googling. What? What? I, I <laughs> do I have to Google this? <laughs> well, you know, just JavaScript domination. <laughs>
Oh man! All right. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thanks for doing this with us. Uh, yeah, it's been great. You know, hopefully we'll we'll catch you soon and uh, at, at you know an upcoming conference or something. Or I'm I'm hoping to go EmberConf this year. Yay. Might be at something sooner than that. EmberConf. Yeah, and and uh, we we have an office up in Chicago, so uh, maybe maybe one of the upcoming uh, meetups we can we can fly up there to work at our Chicago office oh, and that'd come be out awesome. see you guys. Uh, if you uh, that'd be so fun. if you want to come to a great one, uh, January. Focusing on mobile and performance. Ooh, that sounds good. Yeah, that sounds right, Miley. All right, yeah, definitely, definitely putting that on my calendar. <laughs> <laughs>